Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. And I want to thank Cade and Alex for leading while Josh is away with our junior highs. If you're wondering where Josh is, that's where he is. He is uh, in a very stinky place right now, serving the Lord with gladness, I'm sure. Um, We're thankful for him and for all of our junior highs. Who are not stinky, I'm sorry, junior highs, if you're watching, I take all of that back. Uh, Please turn with me in your Bible as we pivot hard. Uh, Acts 21. Acts 21. And I, (laughs) this is what's next for us. I confess this is a a tricky passage in that it it brings us to some of the more controversial things um, that we believe. And last week we talked about how in leadership you need to know your people and you you get a sense of kind of where they're strong, where they're weak, and you get a sense of uh, the things that they're not necessarily going to want to hear when you get to it. And I think that this is one of those weeks. Um, Pastor Paul called these parking lot Sundays where you free up space in the parking lot because some people just don't come back uh, when you deal with some of these issues. Please hear this, and I mean this earnestly. Uh, Some people love being contentious. I don't. So my goal this morning is not to unnecessarily offend anybody. And if I do step on your toe, I hope that it's just because we're being faithful with the scripture and it's not due to my clumsiness. Um, But if you feel your toe being stepped on today, please, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. I'm going to do my best to tread faithfully and carefully. um, And uh, the Lord is going to lead us. Today we're talking about prophecy. Prophecy. And in the midst of that, we're also going to talk a little bit about gender roles in the church. So here we go. Um, and I imagine saying this, some of you feel a bit unsettled, and, and that's fair, and some of you have had bad experiences with prophecy in the church, and so have I, uh, actually. I have too. I, just this topic itself, I find myself kind of bristling a little bit, even just coming into it. And so if that's you, by the way, last week, the same thing happened for others when we talked about leadership. Right? Isn't that true? Last week we talked about leadership and some people have had bad experiences with leadership and they were like, ah. And we said, just lean in and listen to what God's word says and let him, let him speak to you. So I'm saying the same thing to us today. Let's lean in and listen to what God's word says. Um, just because something's been misused doesn't mean you get to throw it away. So we've often used the illustration, if, you, if your neighbor gets electrocuted trying to dethaw their driveway with the hairdryer, that doesn't mean you need to throw out your hairdryer. It just means you need to not use it foolishly, right? And so it is with these gifts. Our our desire is to to perceive if God has given this to us, and I'm going to argue from from God's word that he has, then we want to discern how we can use this rightly and appropriately to build up the church, which is what it's intended to do. And so that being said, if you find yourself feeling a little bit, you're bristling a little bit, I just want to invite you to look with me to the word of God. Be like the Bereans, right? Look to the text and I want to point you to it, and, and I want to work through, and, and by God's grace, I want us to see what is here for us. It is a gift for the people of God. So that being said, look with me now. Acts chapter 21, we're going to read verses 1 to 14. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera, And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed, 
and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip and stayed with him. Oh, Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so as I said, we've been making our way through the book of Acts as a church. Um, and as we're working, working through the book of Acts, we see kind of the meta narrative, the big overarching story, and then we see details as we zoom in. And so this morning, just before I zoom in on this detail of, of prophecy, I want to zoom out and show you something beautiful that you might have missed in the, the larger meta narrative of the book of Acts. We meet a man named Philip. And if you're here for the first time and you haven't been tracking along, that might not mean anything to you. And, and maybe if you're a bit forgetful, that might not mean anything to you either. But if you've been paying attention, this is a beautiful detail. Here we meet again Philip, the text tells us, one of the seven. The seven being the seven who were set apart in Jerusalem back in chapter 6 to care for the widows. So here are one of, he was one of the first believers and he was, he was prominent in the church, and he worked alongside this group of, of seven men, and they were caring for the needs of the widows. You know who wor- he worked closely with? A man named Stephen. Stephen, who was stoned, the first Christian martyr. And when Stephen was stoned, as they threw rocks at him, do you remember who was holding the coats for everyone and cheering them on? It was Paul. So Paul was really leading the charge for the group that murdered Philip's friend. And Paul was so invigorated by this that he then proceeded to persecute the church, to chase them in villages around Jerusalem, to drive them out. And Philip was one of those believers who was driven out of Jerusalem, driven away from his home, from his family, from his loved ones because of his devotion to Jesus, driven out by the group led by Paul. And here, 20 years later, we see Philip and he's settled and he's got four daughters and God's doing a beautiful thing in Philip's life and he's sitting at table with Paul, and they're worshiping together. And you, you can almost rush right by that detail, but it's a beautiful detail, isn't it? And, and for some of you, maybe this will be the takeaway, and this is what you need to hear today. The gospel of Jesus Christ, this forgiveness of sins that makes the worst of us into a child of God, into a redeemed believer, into a follower of Jesus, it takes terrorists like Paul and makes them a part of the family of God. Maybe you need to hear today that this gospel has the power to heal the deepest, darkest wounds. It has the power to transform your enemy into your brother. So pray for those who persecute you, as Jesus taught us, because the story's not over. And 20 years from now, you might find yourself worshiping side by side with that person that you counted as an enemy. That's what we see here. And if you're here, and like Paul, you'd say, maybe you count yourself out. Paul called himself the chief of sinners, 
Maybe you're here and you look at your life and you say, there's no hope for a person like me. I just want to draw your attention to this detail in the story and say, yes, there is. Jesus transforms us completely. And Philip recognized that transformation in Paul such that he could worship with him and his, his daughters. So as we zoom out and look at the meta narrative, that's a detail that we, we need to see. Luke would have us see that. The Spirit would have us see that. But then as we now zoom into this story, there's another detail that really pops out. And that is this gift of prophecy that pops up three times in these two paragraphs. So first we find this church entire. They speak a message from through the Holy Spirit in verse 4. We find Philip's four daughters in verse 9 who are all said to prophesy. And then in verse 11, a prophet named Agabus is called by God to act out a prophecy for Paul. So the prophetic is all over this story and it seems like it'd be appropriate for us to stop here and ask the question, what does this passage teach us about the gift of prophecy? So that's our question. We're gonna draw out four conclusions from this passage. First, what is prophecy? It is the communication of a revelation given by God. Let's walk through why that matters. It's a communication of a revelation given by God. There are lots of different speaking gifts in the church, right? The the gift of teaching, which is a gift I'm using right now, or the the gift of encouragement. There There are speaking gifts. What makes prophecy different than, say, teaching or encouragement? Well, I think we find some clues here in verse four and then verse 11. In verse four we read, and through the spirit they were telling Paul, not to go on to Jerusalem. Then verse 11, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is Agabus, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now in both of these instances, I want you to notice that this word of prophecy comes not as the result of carefully reasoned advice and not as the result of a careful, faithful exegesis of the text, but as a message from God himself through the Spirit. These messages did not come through study, they didn't come through reflection, but they came through the Spirit. And we see the same distinction in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, when he gives them instructions on how to use this gift of prophecy in the church and how to discern what is right and what is wrong. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. And then listen, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, Let the first be silent. So the gift of prophecy is different from a sermon. It's different from a word of encouragement. It's the communication of a revelation given from God. Theologian theologian Wayne Grudem explains, if a message is the result of conscious reflection on the text of scripture, containing interpretation of the text and application to life, then it is, in New Testament terms, a teaching. So that's like what I'm doing right now. But if a message is the report of something God brings suddenly to mind, then it is a prophecy. So I've shared this story before, um, but sometimes it's just helpful to get a real-life illustration example so you can put feet to this. Um, So one of the ways I've seen the gift of prophecy used in our church context in a way that seemed healthy and faithful was uh, when Amanda and I, we had two children, and we were praying about whether or not we should have a third and Amanda had a great job. We weren't really financially in a great place. The house was small. And we weren't sure if the timing was right for this move. And we didn't talk to our friends about it. We were just, it was something we were constantly talking about, praying about. And then somebody came to me one day when I was visiting at Cornerstone. He came up to me after the service and he said, 
hey, listen, I feel compelled to share this with you. This might be weird, but just let me just share it and then you just take it or leave it. He said, I had a dream last night of soapy, suddy water and, and there were these two female hands that came up out of the water and they were holding a baby. He said, and I woke up and then the Lord put you and Amanda on my, my heart. He's like, and the, the verse, she will be saved through childbearing came into my mind, but I don't know. I just, wanted to, I just wanted to share that with you and leave it with you to do with it what you will. And he walked away. And when I shared it with Amanda, we both just felt very strongly that the Lord was speaking to us. And then along comes Noel. And so that, that was an instance where he wasn't, this didn't come from his careful study of the scriptures and in a well-articulated and prepared sermon nor did it come from him kind of thinking and reasoning about our family dynamics and structures. He didn't even know we were thinking about this. He just received a revelation from the Lord and he shared it with us. And so that is what makes prophecy distinctive from some of these other gifts that we've talked about. The communication of a revelation given by God. But the, the most fascinating detail in this story is that in spite of the fact that these prophecies are, are coming through the Spirit, Paul does not change his plans. Right? They, speaking through the Spirit, they're all telling Paul, hey, we don't think you should go to Jerusalem, and, and Paul proceeds to go to Jerusalem. That's interesting. And it leads us to our second lesson about prophecy, which is that prophecy is not authoritative and should be discerned in team. Now, let me repeat that because this is where things can go sideways in a hurry. Prophecy is not authoritative and should be discerned in team. And when we lose sight of this piece... That's when it transforms from a gift for the church into a weapon aimed at the church. And those of us who've had bad experiences, a lot of those experiences can be traced back to when people lose this peace. But look again at verses 13 and 14. Paul listens intently to this prophetic warning that's given by Agabus. And the church is saying, all right, Paul, like, don't go, don't go. And he says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So just think, if words of prophecy were authoritative, then Paul would be in sin by continuing on to Jerusalem. If words of prophecy were authoritative, then this church would have rebuked Paul and held him back from going ahead with his assignment. But these words of prophecy are not authoritative. Therefore, the church was able to say, the will of the Lord be done. Same in the church in Tyre. As they spoke to him and said, don't go to Jerusalem. He went ahead anyway. They went to the beach with him and they prayed. Prayed for him, blessed him on his journey. Now, it begs the question, why didn't Paul listen to their prophetic message? If, if you're not asking that question, I'd wonder how closely you're reading this passage. Like, how does this work? If through the Spirit, they're all saying, Paul, we don't think you should go to Jerusalem, then why was it right for Paul to go to Jerusalem? Well, think of a prophetic word as like a, a puzzle piece. So they had been given this piece of the puzzle, and Agabus spells it out clearly. He, he acts it out for us. He says, hey, I've got a piece of the puzzle, Paul. See these chains around my hands and my wrists? The person who has his belt, it's Paul's belt. This is what's going to happen to him if he goes to Jerusalem. So he's got this puzzle piece that says, persecution is waiting for you in Jerusalem. And seemingly that's the same piece of the puzzle that they had in Tyre. Because both of them, they're saying, we received this from God, this piece of the puzzle. But then they were drawing the wrong conclusion because they don't have all the other pieces. 
And they're drawing the conclusion that if persecution's waiting for you, then certainly you shouldn't go. Which is, by, to be fair, it's probably the conclusion we would draw, right? If I knew that you were about to make a decision and I knew that that decision's probably going to lead to you being imprisoned for your faith, I'd probably say the same thing. Hey, I think God's saying clearly, don't go. That's what these churches were doing. But what they didn't realize that Paul, now having this piece, he had another piece previously where God told him, you are going to go to Jerusalem. So Paul just puts these two together and says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be persecuted and imprisoned. And so as the church stops him and says, don't, don't, Paul, he says, listen, I have to go. I'm ready to be in prison. I'm ready even to die. This is my assignment and I can't change my marching orders. So the consistent message in the New Testament is that prophecy should be welcomed, but it should never be treated as authoritative. It should be welcomed in the church. We should be receptive to this, but it should not be accepted wholesale and thoughtlessly. It should be weighed against what God has clearly revealed in the scriptures. And then it should be discerned in team, which is why when Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, he said, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies but test everything. Hold fast what is good. And then when he, when he wrote to the church in Corinth, he said, let two or three prophets speak. Let them speak. And let the others weigh what is said. So we're not to just accept it. We're to be thoughtful. And it's always to be tested against this rubric. This is the rubric that we've been given, right? When Paul wrote to Timothy, remember what he said to him? He said, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And then he said, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul tells Timothy, he says, you have, you've got the word of God. You're, you're complete here. God has given you what you need. Therefore, these prophetic messages are never given to add to this. They're never given to contradict this. They're never given to move you away from this. And so when somebody says, I've got a word from the Lord, it needs to be in alignment with this. It needs to be pushing you in the same direction as this, or else you need to reject it outright. That's what he's teaching us. And so here I'll just be really clear, if, just in case anybody needs to hear this. Therefore, if ever a person comes to you and says, I have a word from the Lord for you, and they command you to do something, they say, you must do this thing, that's spiritual abuse. Don't listen to those people. That is not, that is not how this works. That's, that's a dangerous thing, and that's the way that this gift is often misused. If somebody comes to you and they says, God says to me that you need to do this thing, especially if it's, in, if it's contrary to what God's word says, then flee from them. But even if it's in alignment with what, let's, so go, let's go back to the example of my friend. If he came and he said, I had this dream, and I, I, God put you guys on my mind. If he had proceeded to say, have a baby, that would be spiritual abuse. That would be wrong. He's, he's been given this one little puzzle piece, and now he's, he's telling me from God, here's what you can do. Nobody has that authority, okay? Nobody has that authority. So, what happens if you do have a, a revelation? Or like, like you're like my friend, and, and God gives you this thing to share. By all means, share it. If, the Lord's, if you feel like the Lord is giving you something and he's calling you to share it with somebody, then you share it, but you share it with humility. That's the piece. Share it with humility. Share it with the humility that you might just be mistaken. Like, 
You might think this is coming from God, but this might just be coming from the funky pizza you ate yesterday, right? Or share it with the humility that even if this is from God, it's just one piece of a big puzzle. So you share the piece, and, you, and then you say, hey, I invite you to share that with others, pray about it, discern in team. You don't need to report back to me what you do with that. I just, here it is. That's what we see modeled in this text in front of us. It brings us to the third lesson that we learn about the gift of prophecy. And that is that prophecy is a gift that is given both to men and to women. It'd be hard to deny that after reading this passage. Luke specifically draws our attention to Philip's daughters. And he tells us in verse 9, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So here are these women in the church and they prophesy. Which is not surprising, or at least it shouldn't be, because in Acts chapter 2, Remember after the Pentecost experience, Peter stands up and he preaches and he quotes from Joel 2. Joel 2 is talking about this new covenant and what's going to change. And so Peter gets up and he preaches. And in the last days, which are the days we're living in, in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And praise God, he's done that. We've received the spirit. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So the Bible clearly teaches and then exemplifies that this gift of prophecy is for men and for women. We see that in the New Testament. And this is where, again, I'm going to risk stepping on some toes, but I think it's worth doing if, if potentially this helps us to walk together in unity. Because I want to give voice to the person who's sitting here and saying, I'm still not convinced. I still don't think that women should be prophesying. And the reason why they're saying that is because of instruction that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 14. So I just want to turn there. I want to look at that. I want to deal with the objection and then to make a way forward. Okay? In 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul's talking about how to use this gift of prophecy, he writes... As in all the churches of the saints. So he's not just talking about something in Corinth. This is for all the churches. The women should keep silent in the churches. For they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So at first glance, and even second, third, and fourth glance, that passage would would seem to clearly be saying that women should not be prophesying in the church. In fact, that passage seems to say that women shouldn't be singing, they shouldn't be praying, they shouldn't be reading the scriptures in church at all. They should be silent in the church. And I've had people come to me and say, hey, here's what the Bible says and here's what you guys are doing at Redeemer. Do you take this seriously? And if, if you've ever asked that question, I want you to know that's a fair question. Like, we want you to wrestle with the Bible. We want to be obedient. So thank you for asking that question. And that's why I want to deal with it here today. Because it's a fair question. Are we just ignoring 1 Corinthians 14? We had women singing and praying for us this morning. My answer is is no. We're not ignoring it. But we're maybe understanding it differently than you are. And I want to just help you to see how we're faithfully dealing with this text. Maybe we're wrong. And you can decide that for yourself. But we are faithfully dealing with this text. I would argue in order to understand what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 14, you need to look at the context of what he's saying. So if you scale back all the way to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, 
In chapter 11, Paul gives instructions on how the women are to rightly pray and prophesy in the context of the church. He gives instructions. He says it should look a certain way. You're women, these are men, you guys are different, equal but different, and it should look a certain way. So he gives instructions on how it should look in chapter 11. It would be odd then in chapter 14 for him to say, but, but don't ever do it. Like, don't speak at all. That, that doesn't make sense. Nor does it make sense with what we read in Acts chapter 2 about men and women prophesying, Philip's daughters. So that doesn't line up with the evidence. So it begs the question, well, what then is he talking about in chapter 14? And again, I'd say if we just look at chapter 14 carefully, we can answer that question. So that flow of thought, what led to it? You can see it in verse 29 of chapter 14. He's talking about how this gift of prophecy is to be used in the church. And then Paul says, let two or three prophets speak and then let the others weigh what is said. And then from there, he goes on to explain what this looks like for the others to weigh what is said. And he says that when that time comes, so let's say, let's say in this gathering, some people come up and they say, I feel the Lord saying this. And then somebody else said, well, I feel the Lord putting on my heart that we, you know, this, we should do this. Or I feel the Lord saying this. Paul says, if something like that's happening in the church, great, praise God, let it be orderly. But then he says, the others need to weigh what is said. And when it's time for somebody to stand up and say, that was in accordance with the word of God and that needs to be forgotten immediately, that was inappropriate, when that time comes, he says, the women should be silent. Let the, men, let the men take that responsibility. That's their job. And I would specify further, I, I would suggest that's really the role of the elders in the church. And this corresponds with what Paul says in his letter to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So putting it together... Paul seems to believe and seems to teach that women can do all of these things. They can pray and they can prophesy and they've got these gifts and they, they should use them in the church. But in this one area of teaching and exercising authority, when it comes time for somebody to stand up and say no to this and yes to this, he says that is the responsibility of the man. They need to step up and take leadership there. Some of you are offended. Interestingly, on both sides of the equation, and I just want to say as Awkward as that can be, I think it's good for us. Clear is kind, I've often heard it said. And so while we're here in this kind of awkward thing, let's just be really clear on both sides of the equation. We've got the church is growing and new people pop in and out and we just want you to know what we believe. We don't hide these things. So on one side, there are probably some people in the room who are shocked and offended that we believe these passages like 1 Timothy 2. That we believe that men and women are equal but different and that they have different roles in the church. You, you had no idea we believe that. And I just want you to know that is what we believe. And so you'll never see a woman serving as an elder in our church or, or teaching, preaching from the pulpit in this church because we do believe what God's word says here. And if that's a deal breaker for you, we love you, but, but I get it. There are other churches that you can find. You should know that. But on the other side of, of this equation there are probably some people who are shocked and offended to hear, to hear me say that we want women praying and prophesying in the church, that we welcome that. Maybe you're here and you came because you knew that we held these other views and you were kind of wondering, like, why is it that ladies are allowed to do these things? And you thought, well, maybe, just maybe one day they'll read 1 Corinthians 14, they'll come to their senses and they'll start shushing the ladies. And I need you to know that we're not going to do that because we've already read 1 Corinthians 14 and this is where we land. 
In fact, it delights us to hear the voices of women in our congregation. We love that. We love that they pray. We love that they prophesy. We expect God to speak to them and through them in this church. And so, again, probably some offense on either side of that equation, but clear is kind, and you should know that this is what we see, and this is what we're practicing. And we're doing our best to be faithful to the scriptures, but that's what we see. That's the third lesson we learn in this passage, that the gift of prophecy is a gift that is given both to men and to women. Now I'll bring it in for the fourth point, which is potentially offensive to one more group. Um, but I'm not, again, I'm not trying to do that. It is, prophecy is a gift that we should earnestly desire. I mentioned off the top that some of us have had bad experiences. And I, I mentioned, I'm one of them. And I want to be clear, some of you know my home church. Like My dad was my pastor. I'm not referring right now to my home church or my dad as my pastor. But in some of the worship gatherings I was a part of in that early movement I was in, I saw some silly things. I did. I remember being at a worship service and it was this beautiful night and everything was so great and then all of a sudden a woman stands up and and goes and takes the mic and she has this word of prophecy for us and she says, God is telling all of you to sell your cars because the environment is crumbling and you get rid of your cars and I just remember sitting there thinking, even as a teenager, just thinking, this isn't right and wondering, is anybody going to say, nobody's said anything, nobody fenced that no no, they just left it just left it hanging and I just remembered thinking I don't ever want to be a part of this ever again so I I have had bad experiences myself and those bad experiences naturally shape what we're thinking about when we read passages like this but as I said just because we've had a bad experience that doesn't mean that we're allowed to forbid what God can do the question isn't have you had good or bad experiences the question is what does God say And if we're going to deal faithfully with the whole counsel of Scripture, we need to be honest enough to say that nowhere in the New Testament are we given permission to forbid the gifts that make us feel uncomfortable. In fact, on the contrary, as I read earlier, Paul tells the Thessalonians, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. He says, you don't get to do that. And by the way, I think probably the type of people who are going to struggle with this are probably people like me who just like to control things. And this is one of those areas where it feels like it's just, it's hard to control. And so we've we've got, we're fearful that that this is going to, this is going to result in silliness, it's going to result in chaos. And I, I get those are very real fears. But Paul says, do not despise prophecy. Or consider his letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 14, verse 1, We're commanded, Paul says, pursue love. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And then he leans in, especially that you may prophesy. Earnestly desire that. You say, well, why, Paul? He goes on to explain in verse four. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. It's like how sweet it is when God gives you a revelation and and you're able to build up your brothers and sisters. And he concludes in verse 39. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. Every part of that verse offends us as Baptists, doesn't it? Earnestly desire to prophesy. It's a gift that builds up the church. Do not despise prophecies. If, if anything I just said in that sentence offended you, we just need to wrestle with the fact that I'm just quoting scripture. And so if the scripture is offending us, then Maybe, just maybe, the problem's not with the scripture, but the problem is with us and with that desire that we have to control. And we think, if I, if I let, let my hands back here, then 
It's going to ruin everything. As we conclude, I want to suggest to you that this gift is already operating in the church. Even if we don't recognize it, I would, I would argue that it pops up in a lot of unsuspecting places. It, it pops up, I would argue, sometimes when you are dealing with someone and they're in this impossible situation and they just share a detail that you didn't see coming and it's like, what could you possibly say? And then God gives you something and it's the right thing to say in the right moment. I would argue that oftentimes that is the gift of prophecy operating in your life. I would argue sometimes it happens for me as I'm preaching and, and the Lord lays something on my heart and it's not what was written, doesn't come out of the study and here it comes and I would argue that oftentimes that is just the gift of prophecy working in the church. I would argue it's even simply, sometimes this is when you just feel compelled to reach out to someone and you call them and say, hey, I feel like the Lord laid you on my heart. Uh, how are you doing? Can I be praying for you? In all of these ordinary situations, I would argue this gift is already operating in and amongst us. It's for our good. And I don't say all that to minimize or trivialize this. I say that because perhaps it's not as frightening or as dangerous as you might be tempted to think. Prophecy is a gift that God gave to his church. And just, my, this is my last paragraph, but just think about that. It's a gift from God for the church. And so I want to acknowledge, if you're hesitant, it's probably for some noble reasons. Let me acknowledge some. Are you committed to making sure that the church doesn't descend into silliness? He's more committed than you are. Are you committed to making sure that heretical ideas and, and silly dreams aren't presented as authoritative truth in the church? He's more committed to that than you are. He's more committed to evangelism than you are, more committed to his holiness, more committed to orderliness in the assembly, more committed to faithfulness. He's more committed to all of the noble things that make us suspicious about this gift than we are. And yet, he who is more committed gave this gift to the church and has demonstrated that clearly throughout the New Testament. So if we would claim to be biblical Christians and to take him at his word, then I would argue that we need to adopt a posture of humility and open our hands expectantly and say, God, whatever you have for your church to build her up, to make her better, is for our good. And we want to receive that. Within all the structures that you've given to us in an orderly, fashionable way, but, but Lord, we want to receive that from your hand with great expectation. And so this morning, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, I thank you for your word. Um, Lord, I thank you that I thank you that your word speaks to all of the, the broad spectrum of our lives and of our worship, even the areas, Lord, that we would be inclined to skip or neglect or ignore. And Lord, I think in this world, in this movement, in this denomination, we struggle to think through some, some of these details. And yet, Lord, it seems clear that you have entrusted us with this gift that seems foreign to us and that we don't understand. Lord, we believe that your word is true. Therefore, we believe that this gift exists to build up the church. So Lord, help us to lay down our desire to control. Help us to lay down our fears and our hurts from the past and to trust, Lord, that if you give this gift, it's because we need it. Lord, I pray that you would Guard against all the things we're afraid of. Lord, I pray that you'd guard against silliness, guard against disorderliness, guard against heresy. Uh, Lord, but I pray that you would help us to operate with all of the strength 
that you would have us have. And your spirit has, has equipped us with these wonderful, powerful, tremendous gifts. And Lord, we see so many of them celebrated in the church and operating. And Lord, then there are others that, that seem to, that we just seem to neglect. Lord, so would you help us? And Lord, I do pray, uh, as we've talked about some, some controversial issues, and Lord, we see through a glass dimly. I certainly see through a glass dimly. Lord, we just want to acknowledge that uh, none of us has the perfect understanding and interpretation of your word, but we want to try our best to be faithful to what we see. Lord, so where I have been faithful, I pray that your word would just be pressed into the hearts of your people. Lord, where I err, Lord, where I have been clumsy or mistaken, I pray that you would just guard our hearts from receiving that. And Lord, I pray that you would preach a better sermon right now than, than anything that could ever come out of my mouth and apply it as you see fit to the lives of your people. And God, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?